Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. As promised earlier this week on the podcast, Core EM is bringing you an extra this week. This is the full recording of Sergey Motov's talk at our Grand Rounds. The title of the talk is The Evolution of Pain Management in the ED, From Poppy Seeds to Ketamine. The audio isn't great, but there were a lot of wonderful things about this talk, so I figured we'd play it in full anyway. The big take-home points were featured in Podcast 9.0 earlier this week, so check that one out as well. All right, on to Sergey's talk. Just first question, can you guys hear me on the back if I'm not going to use a microphone? you okay like this? Okay, if you need to just raise your arm up so I'm going to be able to raise my voice a little. And I'll be okay if I'm not going to use a microphone? Okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Pain is the most common complaint that people secure in the emergency It strikes acutely. It lingers chronically. It brings fair amount of distress to patients and the doctors as well. And if left undertreated or untreated, because of significant behavioral, social, and psychological disturbances in one's life, which lead ultimately to development of aberrant drug-related behaviors, such as abuse, misuse, or diversion of drugs, and the worst part of it is development of addiction. In light of the impact that pain has on our patients, we, practicing the physician, must be true expert in managing a variety of acute or chronic painful conditions. And most importantly, we should take a pride and ownership in doing so. Sadly, it may not be always the case. An example, we do take care of control of airways. We proudly call ourselves intubationists because intubation is a specialty defining skill. We have no problem resuscitating anyone and we proudly call ourselves resuscitationists. God knows we will do the patient's cavities but we take ownership and we call ourselves insertionists. We are rectalists. We are pelvicists. We are suturists. We are incisionists. We are everything. But who are we when it comes to pain management? Well, I'm going to change everything today. And as of right now, I want you to add an additional title to your amazing achievements. You are all emergency medicine algiatrists. So the next time Scott Weiner goes on the public says, we are all resuscitation, it's true, we are. But at the same time, we are all algiatrists because pain is the most common and the most important chief complaint the patient comes to the emergency department for. And I promise you, by the end of this talk, you're all going to get a certificate of achievement. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Sergey Motov. I'm from Imani's Emergency Department, and I too have a general interest and passion for effective and efficient analgesia. I'm honored and extremely excited to be here today. And before I start, I want to thank Anand for inviting me. It means a lot to me to be here with you guys. And of course, thank you for being here today. Uh, we are going to talk about evolution of pain management in the emergency department. And the catchy title is From Poppy Seeds to a Academy. What I'm going to do, I'm probably going to go for about 40 minutes or 45 or so. I will try to leave some time for questions. And for that very reason, I'm just going to sail. And if you have questions afterwards, raise a hand after, because I know you have a break in about 53 minutes, 45 seconds, and I do honor your break time. <laughs> Nothing financial to disclose, and trust me, I would love to take you to 2000 BC, when Sumerians first used extract from poppies, it's not as opium, for treating the pain, or take you to 1500s AC, 
when Europe had an opioid epidemic related to Landau and Elixir, or take it to 19th century, when German scientist Friedrich Sturtner actually synthesized morphine, and I'll be here forever, which I don't mind, but have a break. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you about 26 years back. And we're going to start with the 1989. And in the second, you will find out why it's so important this particular year. And we are going to talk about opioids. And we're going to go to ketamine. And in between, we're going to talk about a few other topics, such as we touch base on ultra-guided regional blocks. We'll be talking about intravenous acetaminophen. We'll talk, of course, about ketamine. And a little bit of insanity about lidocaine. And lastly, my favorite part is concept of targeted ED analgesia. 1989, 26 years ago, two doctors, Wilson and Pennington, reviewed 198 charts of patients presented to the emergency department with variety of acute and chronic painful condition, whether or not they were medical or surgical. And what they found out was striking that 56% of those patients did not receive analgesia while they were in the emergency department. Out of 44% who did receive, close to 67% waited for one hour to receive medication. So, and once again, out of those 44%, third of the patient received suboptimal dose of opioid analgesia. Others' conclusion was that pain in the emergency department is undertreated, poorly treated, and we don't give enough opioids. It was a groundbreaking study. It opened up doors to us, into physicians, to start giving more opioids. At the same token, they increased visibility of pain. Pain became fifth vital sign. Joint Commission mandated pain scores or pain scales to assess and document patients' pain. Things gotten better, and it would have been better had it might have been stayed in the emergency department if it only used opioids for acute pain. But I want to take you jumping to 1997, where American Academy of Pain Medicine and American Pain Society put together a manifesto, which is known as guidelines on using opioids in a chronic non-cancer pain, in which basically they said, use it, it's safe, it's effective, no problems, no short long-term side effects. And that was the beginning of the end. And that's how Pandora box of prescription opioids got to be opened. This massive movement of uncontrolled opioid prescribing practices resulted in colossal collateral damage in the form of abuse, misuse, and diversion. And unfortunately, so many innocent deaths were a result of this particular epidemic. Here's some data. Between 1997 and 2007, rates of prescription of oxycodone and hydrocodone went by 900% and 380%. As of right now, 2015, United States of America is the leading consumer of total world hydrocodone. We consume 98% of it. One country, 90% of hydrocodone. In addition to it, between 1997 and 2007, there were 12,000 unintentional deaths related to prescription opioid overdose. 2011, 14, 2013, 17,000. Right now it's kind of plateau, but here's a striking number. Between 1999 and 2013, 175,000 deaths were reported in the United States related to unintentional prescription opioid <coughs> use, abuse, overuse. Very concerned. I'm going to stop here uh, and I'm going to finish up talking about the opioid epidemics. I want to take you back to 2002 since we evolved. Early 2000s, so 2000 to 2002, there was a shift, drastic shift, when it comes to mepiridine, known as a demoral in the States, known as a cathedine in Europe and Australia and New Zealand. It was found that demoral, known as mepiridine, was not entirely good analgesic, 
had some weak properties, obviously weaker than morphine. And on top of it, what was found was that its active metabolite, known as normicaridine, was found to be fairly neurotoxic, meaning it was causing seizures, lots of them, especially in patients with renal failure, renal insufficiency, or older. On top of it, meperidine was found to have a multiple drug interaction with a particular class of medications known as antidepressants, monamine oxidase inhibitors and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which resulted in serotonin syndrome, and lots of people were dying from it. So slowly but surely, meperidine was removed from I'm entirely with analgesic in the emergency department in hospitals. And I'm not going to be entirely wrong to say almost none of the hospitals in the emergency department in this country are using Demerol today. Demerol's out, we're moving to 2006. What's back? Evil of hydromorphone, known as Dolata, came back. In 2006, Dr. Chen and colleagues from Jacoby Medical Center uh, put together a study evaluating analgesic efficacy and safety of hydromorphone in comparison to. Morphine. They've used 1 milligram of hydromorphone and they've used 0.1 milligram per kilogram of morphine. The results show that at 30 minutes, patients who receive hydromorphone have slightly better uh, change in pain score, which means they have a better analgesia. And when it comes to side effects, people who receive hydromorphone have less pruritus. Author's conclusion was that hydromorphone is totally acceptable and great alternative <laughs> to morphine. And that was the end of morphine. Because I'm a firm believer, some of our colleagues currently practicing and uh, recently retired have this false belief or misconception that smaller aliquots of hydromorphone will provide less opioid dosages to our patients. Smaller aliquots will provide lesser dosages of opioids to our patients, which is a great, great misbelief, and it's absolutely wrong. Despite years and years, let's say decades of research when it comes to opioid analgesia, we still have this dilemma because people are still arguing. What's the best way of dosing opioids? When it's a weight-based, but it's a fixed dose. And some people have been fighting. So let's start with the weight-based. We're going to back to 2005. <coughs> Our colleagues on Jacobi, Bijor, and colleagues showed that 67% of patients had less than 50% change in pain score, <coughs> Excuse me, which means they have suboptimal pain relief while they were given 0.1 milligram per kilogram of weight-based morphine. A few years later, beam bomb showed the same problem. 47% of patients had less than 50% change in pain score. Suboptimal pain relief when morphine was given at 0.1 milligram per kilogram. Pactus and colleagues compared intravenous acetaminophen to morphine given at 0.1 milligram per kilogram and showed that nearly half of the patients required rescue fentanyl at 30 minutes, deeming weight-based dose of morphine inadequate. Lastly, Bailey conducted a beautiful study in pediatric patients when morphine at 0.1 milligram per kilogram was compared to placebo in relieving pain of patients presented with the right lower quadrant. Results show that at 30 minutes there were no difference in pain between placebo and morphine given at 0.1 milligram per kilogram. So what do we do? We start doing weight-based? Well, some of our colleagues went in other extremes. So we're talking about the fixed dose. And a colleague from Arizona, Seed, Patamala, and colleagues, they did two studies. 2012, they put 50 opioid-naive patients with a weight range between 70 to 160 kilos, and they all got 4 milligrams of uh, fixed dose of morphine. They all had identical change in pain score, and there were no correlation to initial weight. Similarly, in 2014, Patamala put together 100 non-obese, 100 obese, and 100 morbidly obese patients, and they all got 4 milligrams of morphine as a single push. At the end of the study, all the patients had essentially similar change in pain score. 
which translated to severe pain relief. Another conclusion was, well, maybe weight-based dose is not really important. We can use fixed dose and get a great pain relief. CA in 2014, colleague from Jacoby, used one milligram of hydromorphone fixed dose to 138 patients with acute pain. Results show that all patients had a similar change in pain score. Once again, challenging the concept that maybe weight-based dose of morphine is not what we should be doing. Lastly, Chang, our amazing colleague from Jacoby, who pioneered hydromorphone use in the emergency department, pushed two milligrams of hydromorphone to patients presenting to the emergency department with acute pain. It was a great deal of pain relief. Pain dropped from 10 to 1 at 5 minutes and to uh, 0 at 30 minutes. The worst part, about 33% of patients became hypoxic. Lowest side was 86%. That's kind of scary. So all authors concluded maybe 2 milligrams is a little too much. So the question is what do we do? Is it weight-based or is it fixed dose? The one of the major problems with all the studies that forgot to mention crucial word, initial. When it comes to initial dosing of morphine, I want you to remember this. It doesn't really matter what dosing regimen you choose. What matters is what you're going to do after. And for that very reason, one key word is, when it comes to opioid analogy in the emergency department, titration is the key. Because when you titrate opioids, two things are going to happen. First, pain is going to get better. Or second, side effects will become intolerable and you will need to intervene. But usually, pain becomes better before side effect becomes intolerable. <laughs> Titration is the key. Proof, 2008, our colleague from France. Morphine titrating protocol, three milligram Q5 minutes. At the end of the study, at 60 minutes, 99% of patients had acceptable or appropriate pain relief. Mind you, you're gonna say, well, that's insane. How can you even spare a nurse for 15 minutes at the bedside? Valid point, but in, apparently in France, it worked. Similarly, Chang, after two milligrams was really unsuccessful, they put together one plus one hydromorphone titration protocol. And the results showed that it's 30 minutes, 77% of patients had appropriate change in pain score. Or pain relief defined as a change in numerical rating score greater than three. At one hour, 96% of patients had a change in numerical rating score greater than three, which by the study design was deemed significant. Titration is the key. And this is my first key point. So there was a question? I'm hallucinating. My first take-home message is, when it comes to opioid knowledge in the emergency department, please titrate. It doesn't matter what you start patient with. As far as I'm concerned, you can give them two milligrams. But make sure you come back in five minutes or two and a half minutes and ask if patient needs more pain medication and give another dose. Or you can start with a 0.1 milligram per kilogram or 0.15 or 0.2 as far as I'm concerned. But make sure you're going to reassess patient in appropriate time interval. First take-home message. When it comes to opioid analgesia, titration is the key. 2006. It's my firm belief that nothing has revolutionized the way we practice emergency medicine as bedside emergency ultrasonography. And there's even much firmer in my belief is that ultrasound guided regional ultrasonography is revolutionizing the way we practice our treating pain. And I believe in about five years from now, this is going to be number one or primarily modality when it comes to pain management in the emergency department. Why? Because when it comes to ultrasound-guided regional blocks, it provides effective and extremely efficient analgesia. Best part, fewer side effects. In addition to it, you can reduce the rates of opioid administration or core administration to 50, 60, 70%. And in some situations, 
you don't even need opioids. It blows my mind sometimes to think of it. I can't manage somebody's pain without opioids, but it's true. Best part, by using real-time ultrasonography, you can see the nerve. You can see the tip of the needle. You can actually follow the infusion of anesthetic around the nerve. Because you use an ultrasound, you don't need to put the patient on the monitor. You don't need to have a pre-EKG. You need to have a, a pretty much nothing. Nurse will love you. You spare so much time. And because with the new standard of analgesics, lengths of stay in the nursing department is going to be exponentially shorter. At least this is some of the reason we should be loving ultrasound value emergency ultrasound. Let's look at the sound of the data. 2006, Mike Bly was one of the godfather of regional blocks in the nursing department, published a study of four patients who presented to the emergency department with the dislocated shoulders. <clears throat> and they all had ultrasound-guided interscaline block with lidocaine. Two had lidocaine, two had bupivacaine. Results, total pain control, total pain-free. No rescue, no geezer, total mass relaxation, successful reduction in the first attempt. Beautiful. Later on, Mike Stone put together a study of five patients who presented with the abscess dislocation of fracture of the upper extremity. And they've used ultrasound-guided block of brachial plexus in the supraclavicular region. Average time to decrease pain to zero was 20 minutes. No rescue analgesia, no procedural complications. Harry and colleagues had a patient with a clavicular fracture. And instead of giving him usual perks and bikes or even giving IV opioids, they block them. They've used 8 cc of 0.5% bupivacaine, and they use superficial cervical plexus block under ultrasound guidance. Pain dropped from 10 to 1 in about 13 minutes. Patient was discharged home, 24 hours follow-up phone call, no pain, and no opioid given on discharge. Lastly, Liebman showed that if you use ultrasound guidance for any hand trauma procedures by using forearm blocks, such as median, ulnar, or radial nerve, by using ultrasound, you can probably get a pain under control in about five minutes. It will take about eight minutes to nine to have total control for the uh, ending of the procedures and no immediate or delayed complications after three months. Ultrasound guided regional blocks. Let's not forget lower extremity. Haynes and colleagues from Maimonides published one of the first studies on using ultrasound guided regional block by doing fascia block in 20 elderly patients with heat fracture. Imagine a 90-year-old, he gets to giving opioids, what's going to happen to them? But there's a 90-year-old who gets a block, talking, had no hemodynamic compromise, life is good. By this study, 76% of patients had significant change in pain score at 120 minutes, and only four of them had the rescue analgesia. Francesca Biaduin later on did the same study. 13 patients, all early, hip fracture, family block, Alberson guided. Eight minutes for the procedure, one attempt, no adverse effect. Three patients who have rescue analgesia. Turning, pediatric hip fracture, actually pediatric femur fracture, showed that if you use ultrasound-guided regional block for pediatric femur fracture, you will have significant longer-lasting analgesia in comparison to IV, PCA, morphine, or fentanyl, less rescue opioid analgesia, and less total dose of opioid. Boy showed that if you have traumatic lower extremity injury by using ultrasound, you'll probably be able to kill the pain in five minutes. It will take about seven minutes to do the procedure, and you would not have major side effects whatsoever. My second take-home point to you guys is embrace ultrasound-guided regional blocks. This is the future. Master it. Try it first. Master it. Become expert and pass it to second generation. The next generation comes after you. This is the future. 2010. Big red letters. 
2010 was a significant year because FDA approved intravenous acetaminophen for fever in postoperative patients and as an analgesic for mild pain or as a co-analgesic as agent to opioids to moderate or severe pain, mostly for post-surgical patients. That brought excited delirium to our colleagues from anesthesia and surgery. And I simply sound them still delirious with all due respect. <coughs> because some of the studies that were sponsored by big pharma companies showed that if you use intravenous acetaminophen as a part of multiplicity, as a part of multimodal analgesia, you can actually drop the dosage of opioids significantly. And once again, the pharmacy sponsor study showed the range of dropping opioids were between 30% to whooping 78%. 78% reduction of opioids. Everybody went ballistic. Everyone crazy. Let's get this medication. People just kept for, uh, forgot one thing. It's such a weak of the weakest analgesics. And when it works alone, it doesn't really do much. All right? And subsequent studies when euphoria initial settled down showed that yes, it does reduce opioids administration when you combine these two. But Close to 20%. There's no whooping 78%. So when it comes to emergency department, there were several of our colleagues who actually decided to uh, check whether or not intravenous acetaminophen would work as good as the same. So they've chosen patient with renal colic. Easy to study, pain is out of control. Let's see what's going to happen. Four studies. Two were done by our colleagues from Turkey. Two were done by our colleagues from Iran. Dr. Bektas and Serenkin. All trials were randomized controlled trials compared. One single dose of intravenous acetaminophen, one gram, given over 15 minutes, to a morphine, given at 0.1 milligram per kilogram. In primary outcome change in pain score at 30 minutes. So Bechtas and Serenke from Turkey showed essentially similar change in pain score at 30 minutes. Serenke study showed that patient who received uh, morphine required a more analgesia in comparison to acetaminophen. Bechtas showed rates were essentially the same. Both studies showed that those patients who received intravenous acetaminophen had significantly less side effects, less nausea, less vomiting, now they become dizzy, now they drop their blood pressure. All right? Aziz Kani from Iran <coughs> excuse me, showed that if you use intravenous acetaminophen for real color, it's not working at all. Studies showed that change in pesca was minimal, if ever, patients were in agony, and only good thing was that none of the patients who received a vitalinol had side effects. There were nagani, but no side effect. Lastly, Masumi showed that if you give uh, acetaminophen to patients with colic, pain is going to get better. They're going to have less side effects in comparison to morphine. Two studies similar. One study shows that it works worse, one is better. So what do we do? So a few things I want you to understand when it comes to intravenous acetaminophen. Number one is insanely, insanely expensive. And it's really impossible for me to justify its use for routine analgesia in the emergency department. Between January of 2014 and July 1st of 2014, the price hike for intravenous acetaminophen in America went up by 325%, from $6 to $36. As of right now, one vial of one gram of IV acetaminophen, retail price goes between $36 to $42 per vial. Here's a comparison. One gram, two tablets of 500 mg of acetaminophen PO, $0.08. Rectal suppository, less than a dollar, 1,250 milligrams. We're talking about a 150 times increase in the price of medication that barely works as analgesic. Second, mind you, 
Studies show that there might have been increasing rates of opioid administration. However, IV acetaminophen has nothing to do with the opioid-induced side effects, which means if you give somebody opioids or could give somebody opioids, they will puke their guts out, they will be very nauseous, and IV acetaminophen does not negate or mitigate the side effects. And in addition, the major side effect of intravenous acetaminophen was nausea and vomiting. 2012, one of the uh, most prominent poison control centers out of Colorado, Rocky, Rocky Mountain Poison Control Center, reported 10 cases of eutrogenic pediatric overdose when it comes to intravenous acetaminophen. What happened was physicians were prescribing dosages in milligrams. However, nurses miscalculated things. They were given those in milliliters. It resulted in 10 times increased dose of intravenous acetaminophen. Lastly, it's a glass bottle, occupational hazard. You're rushing, your nurse is rushing, they can squeeze the bottle, they're gonna cut themselves, right? Occupational hazard. It's a one gram given over 15 minutes. It's not amenable to titration because the closest you can get to second dose, it's six hour, hours after first dose is given. Imagine this one gram given to a little pediatric patient. The fair amount of wastage. In Kenya for wastage when the one vial costs $42? No. So here's my third take home point. When it comes to intravenous acetaminophen analogies in the nursing department, it's not justifiable to use it. For the lab, it's not. It doesn't reduce opioid-induced side effects, all right? It's not without a complication. There are some dosing errors, and most importantly, it's so obscenely, insanely expensive that I cannot tell anything more than this. So when it comes to IV acetaminophen, if you have it, be very, very careful when you use it. Forget about using a single agent. It's technically useless. You can combine two, but pretty much you will have to talk to your children after. Why have you such expensive drug? If you have something better. Now let's talk about something sexier. Ketamine. Over the past seven, close to ten years, it's been an explosion of ketamine use in the emergency department. Now, I'm not going to be talking about DSI. I'm not going to talk about the controlling EDPs. I'm not going to talk about the RSI. We're going to talk about A. In 2000, if you searched PubMed into the year of 2000, there were only 300 papers related to use of ketamine in the emergency department. 2013, 750. As of right now, close to 1,300. Half of them are those related to use of ketamine for analgesia in the emergency department. When it comes to analgesia, courtesy of uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Ruben Schroyer, you need to understand the dosages. And when we talk about ketamine and analgesia, we are talking about low dose also known as sub-dissociative dose, also known as analgesic dose of ketamine. And as the diagram shows, ranges 0.1 to 0.4 milligram per kilogram, which is nearly seven to 10 times less of a dose that we accustomed to use. Most commonly uh, practiced and published dose is 0.3 milligram per kilogram. Some of the research in the world of immersive medicine show that ketamine at this dose can be good adjunct and it's combined to opioid analgesia, or can be used as a single agent. Johansson and Jennings, they put two studies, randomized controlled trials, in pre-hospital care settings, and demonstrated that if ketamine is given in low dose, between 0.15 to 0.25 milligram per kilogram, as an adjunct to opioid analgesia, two things can happen. You will can decrease opioid dose by about 35%, and upon arrival to the hospital, those patients had significantly greater change in pain score, which translated a significantly greater pain relief. Iron was able to show us 
that if you use low-dose ketamine and they started to use 15 milligrams of fixed dose, they were able to cut hydromorphone dose in half. They've used 0.5 milligram of hydromorphone in addition to 15 milligrams of ketamine. And 14 patients in the study had complete pain control at 10 minutes. Kalinsky in their study, they've used 0.2 milligram per kilogram of low-dose ketamine and were able to drop their opioid rate by 28%. Lastly, just recently published study uh, last year in Academic Commercial Medicine that could be doing demonstrated that if you put two doses of ketamine as adjunct opioids at 0.15 milligram per kilogram or 0.3 milligram per kilogram, patients do so much better when patients who receive morphine alone. And 0.3 was found to be doing a little better than 0.15. So ketamine as adjunct was great. Now subsequently to it, two randomized controlled trials came out who compared head-to-head -head morphine to ketamine. 0.3 milligram per kilogram of ketamine, 2.1 milligram per kilogram of morphine. Results showed that at 5, 10, even up to 15 minutes, ketamine group did better when it came to analgesia. How about one study, uh, Millers and colleagues, at 20 minutes, had similar change in pain score with morphine, and at 30 minutes, our Maimonides study showed it had some eff efficacy. As you can see, there are studies, and there are more studies coming up that more ketamine at low dose, subdisurgery dose works great as adjunct opioids, or can be used for short-term analgesia as a single agent. Here's the problem. All these studies show that even by using low dose, which is standard dose by custom to use, <coughs> patients had <coughs> minor side effects, excuse me. They were bothersome. They were short-lived. And you can see the range 14% in pre-hospital care <coughs> excuse me, to 80% in uh, Maimonides group trial. Patients had side effects. Those side effects were directly related to a rate or degree of infusion, which means they were occurring in the first two minutes upon ketamine administration. What are those side effects? Nausea, vomiting, dizziness, lightheadedness, and feeling unreality. Describe, I'm quicksanding, I'm floating. They weren't entirely getting dissociated, they weren't entirely incapable, they were like in pre-hole. <laughs> they, were, they were on the cusp of getting to the vehicle, but they really weren't there because subsequently to it, we've done something, they were able to, I believe, avert it. What we did was, and there's a practical uh, teaching point for you guys, if you ought to use ketamine analgesic, low-dose ketamine analgesic, do not push the medication. You get this initial woof, and you're going to have people quicksanding and cakehole and having fun. Instead of it, take 0.3 milligram per kilogram, infuse in a 100cc piggyback, Give it over 10 minutes. No monitor, no pump, just give it over 10 minutes. You will have side effects. I'll show you how, what's the rate of it. The patients will be doing better. Subsequently to it, you can actually initiate an infusion of ketamine in the nursing department with a dose of 1.5 to 0.2 milligram per kilogram per hour. And in order for you to educate the nurses to make it simple, you tell the nurse, please take 100 milligram of ketamine, push in 100 cc, 100 ml, I'm sorry, of normacillin will give you one-to-one -one ratio and start at 10 ml. Start at 15 ml, which translates to 10 to 15 milligrams. And you can titrate it up to 30 minutes or titrate it down to 30 minutes. It does work. 2014, gold string colors. A booty case series of 14 patients presented to emergency department with a variety of acute and chronic painful conditions. Third of these patients were chronic opioid users, and 86% of those patients failed opioid treatment in the emergency department. They were given 0.3 milligram per kilogram of ketamine over 10 minutes. 11 out of 14 patients had significant change in pain score. 
uh, greater than 3, which by statistical analysis was deemed to be clinically significant. And look at the bottom, only two patients, two, had side effect. One had dizziness and tinnitus, the one felt nauseous. No quicksanding, no pre-keyhole, no psycho-dissociative effect of ketamine related. Just recently, Aaron and colleagues come up with an interesting regimen of ketamine. They've used 15 milligrams of ketamine as IV poor single agent, and immediately, they put patient on a drip. They put 200 mil sorry, 20 milligrams of ketamine in a 100 CCP bag and let it run over one hour. They had 38 patients. At five minutes, seven patients were pain-free. At 60 minutes, 25 patients out of 38 had significant change in pain score, greater than three on the medical rating scale. At 120 minutes, 26 out of 38 patients had acceptable change in pain score. But here is the problem on the bottom. Nearly 80% of patients had those bothersome minor side effects that were short-lived and that did not require any interventions. And I'm from Bolivar, the reason those patients had the side effects because initial dose of ketamine was pushed as an intravenous push over one or two minutes. Take on point number four. When it comes to low dose, known as analgesic dose, known as sub dissociative dose ketamine analgesic, use 0.3 milligram per kilogram with a range being 0.1 to 0.4, diluted in a 100 cc piggy bag of normal selling, given over 10 minutes. If you one of the patients on the drip, you can do the same thing or continuous infusion. Use 0.15 to 0.2 milligram per kilogram per hour and titrate up or down at Q30 minutes intervals. If patient has no access, you can use intranasally subdisorders of ketamine. Those comes to be 1 milligram per kilogram. Now, without getting too much of details, there are studies on the market that show that you can use subcutaneous infusion of ketamine for patients who have no accesses. Try to imagine convince patients with a sickle cell crisis to be put on the ketamine infusion via subcutaneous route. I think it's a future, it might work, but it's been working. Similar doses intravenous, okay? That's low-dose ketamine analgesia. Now let's have a little bit of insanity. So have a little sex aside, we have a little insanity. 2012, our friend from Iran, Dr. Solomon Burke, published case series of eight patients who presented the nursing department with intractable renal cholera. And guess what this patient received? They received intravenous lidocaine, the one, the cardio one, in the pink bottle. Don't get confused with the one we use for the local analogies. Pink bottle lidocaine has 100 milligrams of lidocaine in it. They used those of 1.5 milligram per kilogram, given intravenously as a push for patients with renal cancer. Here's the result to your right, to your left. At 30 minutes, 7 out of 8% had complete pain relief. Seven out of eight patients had complete pain relief at 30 minutes by giving intravenous lidocaine. Three patients had a bit of slurred speech, fun, and two patients felt a little uh, dizziness. None of the patients developed an arrhythmia, none of the patients had to be rescued. Subsequently to this particular study, uh, Dr. Solomon Poor published a randomized control trial where 120 patients received either lidocaine and 120 patients received morphine weight base at 0.1 milligram per kilogram. The results show that at 60 minutes, 90% of patient lidocaine group has a even greater change in pain score in comparison to 70% of morphine, patient in a morphine group. And on the bottom, 15 patients out of 120 had minor side effects, mostly dizziness, nausea, and periorbital and perioral numbness. Intravenous lidocaine for renal cholera. 
I know it's insanity, it sounds absurd, but it works, and I'll tell you why. When it comes to side effects, most common side effect is dizziness, occasional tinnitus, so they can be slurred speech, which is very, very transient. Don't worry, patients are not stroking out any of they just have the side effect of lidocaine. They have a periorbital and perioral numbness. Short-lived, about a minute to two, nothing needs to be done. But I'm, once again, I believe everything related to the speed or rate of infusion. So if you want to use a lidocaine for your local in your department, do the same thing. Take the pink bottle, yank the lidocaine out, push the content of lidocaine, it's 100 milligrams, in 100, 100 ml normal cellin, and give it over 10 minutes. So here's the best part. I've used uh, lidocaine, cardiac lidocaine, and real colic patients for over a year and a half. I had about 36 patients. Uh, half of the patient had a combination of keterolog and lidocaine, half of the patient had lidocaine. Two patients required risk hemorrhagic. Only two out of 36. It works. It does work. Yes, sir. When you control over something like lidocaine in the ED, what do you send them home with? That's a beautiful question. What do you send a patient with the I'd use ibuprofen, no opioids, and I'll tell you why. We're talking about 30 seconds, why isn't the patient with opioids? And definitely not Flomax, right? Because because we're in the moment, they're both the lidocaine. Huh? Okay. Yeah, I'll tell you in a second. There's a few things coming. So this is comes to lidocaine. Take a message number five. Now we're going to talk about the coolest subject. We're almost done. I want to introduce you to concept of channels, enzymes, and receptors, targeted ED analgesic. I call this the concept. It's actually a multimodal approach to pain management department, but we're special VEM. We do things differently, and I think CERTA sounds better than multimodal. Here is the premise of the concept. Imagine for a second what would have happened to any of your patients if you use two or three different analgesics from different classes with different target sites that can be given via similar route or different route. What could happen to your patient? I'll tell you what. Pain will become much more tolerable and you'll probably be able to control pain at much greater extent. Because you're combining analgesic, you can use lesser dose of it. Most of this analgesic in this particular scenario are non-sedative, which means the length of stay in the emergency department will be significantly decreased and patient's gonna feel better. Channels, enzymes, receptors, targeted analgesia. And this is what it boils down to. Because as of right now, 2015, our understanding of pain is completely different right now. Instead of using disease and pain, pain syndrome and disease, we should look into neurobiology of pain. All the bells and whistles, what actually responsible for this particular pain syndrome? And I'm gonna show some of the examples. We're going to start with channels. Sodium channel blockade makes perfect sense. You stop depolarization, you arrest nociception, and your blood transmission. Pain stimulus doesn't get anywhere else. You arrest right there at the periphery. What we use? We use our local anesthetic. How do we use it? Locally, digital blocks. Regionally, other than guided regional anesthesia, don't you forget about topical preparation. Skin is a beautiful organ, it's a large organ in the body, works just as well. Lidocaine patches, all right? Lidocaine in general, you can use it as well. And then, obviously, you can use systemic lidocaine for treating renal colony. Don't forget about tetracaine drops when you treat corneal ulceration. Sodium channel blocking. Works fantastically beautiful. There's another class of medication where we so often not accustomed to use in the emergency department. Antidepressants, particularly tricyclics. 
they have a sodium channel blocking properties. And those medications such as nortriptyline or amitriptyline are phenomenal in control of pain for post neuralgia, diabetic neuropathy, sciatica, even fibromyalgia. Beautiful medications. Calcium channels, central calcium channels. Those are not calcium channel blockers. There's not a verapamilocardism, uh, uh, no. Those are anticalmosols. Neurontin, nosogabapentin, or pregabalin, known as Lyrica. Found great deal of use in the emergency department. And I firmly believe you should be using this medication for patients with a chronic intractable neuropathic pain. Mind you, it will take some time to work, but you should be initiating this medication in the emergency department. This is your channels. Enzymes, COX-1, COX-2, COX-3, NSAIDs. Everybody uses NSAIDs. We can just basically cannot live with NSAIDs. So use it. But once again, don't forget about the topical version of it. We can use diclofenac gels, right? Bengate, we're crying out loud. We can just use simple Bengate. It irritates the skin, but it does the thing. When it comes to receptors, opioid receptors, we cannot do anything with opioid receptors. But this point of targeted analgesia, it actually pushes opioid as a second, maybe the third line of analgesics. And what I'm trying to preach is that I'm not against opioids. But if you use this approach, you may actually reserve to opioids as a rescue analgesic. Next time I have a patient with pain, I'm going to show some examples. Don't jump straight to Norco or any opioid content preparation. Just keep them as a reserve. Nobody needs to suffer. But you, gained, we've gained enough knowledge at this time of our understanding of pain measure that we can use different medication. Use opioids as a rescue analgesic. And MDA, that's your ketamine comes in. GABA, propofol. There are cases literally that propofol can be used for intractable migraine headache. It does work. All right? We can use central alpha 1 and 2 agonist. Clonidine for neuropathic pain, for acute pain. Dexmedetomidine. It's hard for me to say because it's even more expensive than acetaminophen, but it can be used. And lastly, some adjunct steroids, colchicine, antiemetics, combination of metoclopramide and uh, dafenhydramine for a headache, no opioids. We can use different medications and such. So once again, I believe if we approach pain in 2015 and from this particular perspective, you'll be very, very successful. And what's going to make you so unique and so good? You'll be able to talk to patients because you understand what this patient is suffering from and what's involved. Simple example. Renal count. Now imagine for a second, if you, I'll tell you, you cannot, you can't manage, manage renal count without opioid analgesia. You're probably going to punch me in the face, are you nuts? How can we do so? Well, we can, because when it comes to renal color, there are actually two receptors, one receptor, one channel, they're responsible for it. The sodium channel and the COX-1 and COX-2 enzymes. And that's what you need to know. Mews are there, but they're not primarily receptor responsible for it. Because it just so happens that ureter is so rich with COX-1, COX-2 enzyme, that's why Ketorolac works so well. So is sodium channel blocking agent. That's why Latakin works so well. What Latakin would do is it would block transmission in sympathetic afferent nerve system, which will actually lead to urethral dilatation and when assistant passage of the stone. So next time, if you can, if you have a patient with renal call and you have time and you wanted to try something new, you can combine, let's say, 10 mg of Keterola with 100 mg of Idolatokin and see what's going to happen to your patient. I'm not denying the opioids, but maybe for the first 5 or 10 minutes, see what you do. There are anecdotal evidence that Keterolic alone works just fine. They're anecdotal. Some of the experienced colleagues are probably going to say, yes, it does. I've yet to see it because, unfortunately, out of my 12 years present in nursing medicine, I've yet to find a single patient who will do well with Keterolic alone, but it works. But combining these two, it does work. If it does work in 10 minutes, 
You don't want people. Alright? Neuropathic pain. Katie will say sciatica. We'll have sciatica, chronic back pain, okay, and then 10,000 medications. But we can help them because we can rationalize. Let's say if there is not internal cripple, they can ambulate. You can use the same concept to your leg. Cox, anti inflammatory properties and analgesia. They're out there, they're constantly firing. Sodium channel block agent is a number one drug for neuropathic pain because their ectopic discharge is coming from the injured nerves or ganglia or roots. Nothing works better than sodium channel blocking. And that's what lidocaine patches, lidocaine cream, nortriptyl or amitriptyl as a TCAs are coming into pending. We can use uh, anticonvulsants with neuropathic properties such as neurotoxin and gabapentin. Lastly, patient can go into a their pain management specialist, they get epidurals, either with lidocaine or steroids, and they're going to feel better. And see equation, there is an opioid. Because when it comes to chronic pain, which is neuropathic part of it, there is no immune receptors. Frankly, they're so being overly activated that there is a concept called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which means if you give opioids to this patient, they're going to be in more pain. If they were on pre-existing conditions, they were taking pain. It doesn't work. And this is what Dr. Jim Ducharme published recently in uh, Mercy Medicine News. This is an approach to patient with post-herpetic neuralgia, sciatica, fibromyalgia, and such. This is your first-line medications. Look, there's no opioids. If patient is bedridden, they're not able to ambulate, and they're concerned about poor compression, or whatever patient is so pain is so intractably painful, you can put him on a ketamine infusion, or lidocaine infusion in the nurse department. You can do this, because you understand neurobiology, you understand the, what causes this pain syndrome, what, re, what receptors are involved. Lastly, it's probably entirely insane to even imagine managing acute traumatic pain without opioids, right? Imagine this patient comes to your emergency department, what are you going to yell? I need 20 milligrams of hydromorphone, I need you know, 100 milligrams of morphine and such. Well, it's 2015, we just talked about this targeted channels and some receptors theory of mine. Well, not mine, it's been there. Imagine if you have this patient rolling his belly and you do sciatic nerve block via ultrasound guidance in the popliteal fossa, right before a bifurcate. You will knock the pain off internally. You can do femoral block as well, pain not, be, not as good, but you can add ketamine to it and you're golden. Here we go, patient with a fracture dislocation, open fracture, mind you, of lower uh, tip hip, who's smiling, talking to you, texting, Calling his girlfriend, tell him I'm feeling fine. He's not on PCA morphine or dilated. He's not getting opioids. He's not getting hypotensive, hypoxic, nauseous, and such. It can be done. If it doesn't work, 10 minutes. I'm asking for 10 minutes. Seems like eternity, but you can always give opioids. But my point is only is we can do things a little differently. Once again, I'm not against opioids. But we get to find something that will be remotely resembling to an acute settings. And they're great indications. But if we can put him on the second line as a rescue, he use something different, with less side effect, early ambulation, and a little discharge from a D, it would be so much better. So let me summarize everything else, I'm going to get back to your question. Here's the six take-home points I want you to remember from today's talk. Number one, when it comes to opioid analgesia, please titrate. It doesn't matter what your initial dose is, weight-based or fixed. What matters is what you're going to do next. Titration is the key. Remember two things. Pain becomes tolerable, relief, acceptable, or side effects becomes intolerable. Number two, embrace, learn, master, become an expert in ultrasound guided regional blogs. This is the future of how to manage pain in the nursing department. 
least understand limitations that we talk about intravenous acetaminophen. Absin cost, weak analgesics, side effects, wastage, pediatric overdosages. Embrace ketamine analgesia at the fullest. I know it's a problem, the sex is topic right now. This is how you do it. But if you ought to use ketamine, use it as a short infusion over 10 minutes. Don't push it. All right? Try, at least try to use intravenous lidocaine for renal colic next time I have a patient. See what's going to happen. And last question. Try to, if you need to, try to read up a little. Try to get to understand what concept that I mentioned to you. This serve the concept. Channels, enzymes, receptors, targeted analgesia. You'll be extremely successful in managing pretty much any pain that you're faced with your, present, your patient presenting. Titrate, embrace, understand limitations. Let the ketamine analgesia rip in your nursing department. Try lidocaine, and of course, consider, at least consider using certain concept in the nursing department. And what I want to do is I would like to finish an inspiration note. And there's a sound quotes that I truly, truly admire. Number one, you have no idea what you're capable of until you try. And that's exactly what we will my today's talk. You've heard some of the things that you believe might be insanely insane. And you probably tell me afterwards, I don't know what you've been smoking, I'm telling you, I'm not taking care of you before the talk. Try. And you'll be surprised what you can do and what your knowledge, because of it, can enhance your ability to manage somebody's pain. Number two, by far one of my favorites, quote, I'm quoting straight from uh, Twitter, by Simon Carlin. Evidence is great, but it only reaches the patient if you believe in it. I do not, any of you, want to go out of the stock straight to the nursing department and start pushing lidocaine, uh, giving ketamine, and doing crazy things. No. I want you to be all merely skeptical. Don't take my word for it, even though it's like I've done some research and such. Remember something I've said, do your due diligence, do some research, believe in evidence. If you don't believe it, don't do it. Because this is what it's all about. You've got to believe in what you do in order to make patients feel better. If you don't, you'll fail. And no matter what, no matter anybody do, whatever evidence I'll show you, it's all futile. It's up to you. Believe in what you do. By trusting certain evidence, but if you do, in others. And the last thing. Last inspiration quote, I promise. Start by doing what's necessary. It's a human right to have their pain to be controlled in the nursing department. Take care of your patients, control their pain. By any possible cause, any possible tool, pharmacological, non pharmacological method, that's what you sign up for. That's what you pledge, that's what you owe, and that's what you do for it. Remember, you are now a nursing medicine algiatrist. You've got to do this. If you start taking pain seriously and control pain in your patient, next what you can do, do what's possible. Same concept again. Continue a bit of ketamine there. Try to understand what's wrong with IV acetaminophen. Maybe push a little lidocaine. And before you know it, you'll be mastering concept of targeted ED analgesia. And you'll be able to manage somebody's pain without opioids, at least while they're in the nursing department. And it's a beautiful, beautiful change. The way we practice in nursing medicine. This is me. Those are my credentials. I'll be more than happy. Do we have two minutes? Absolutely. Oh, beautiful. I'm going to take some questions. And if you want to take a picture, please call me, email me. Oh, don't call me. Email me. Uh, you can tweet me.